It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Medical research on the therapeutic opportunities of psychedelics is moving fast, and the topic is getting an avalanche of attention. Some U.S. states are also considering legalizing certain psychedelic substances. The media is filled with misleading and confusing information on the subject, and even members of the psychiatric community aren't all on the same page. Right now, in traditional settings, if a patient comes and says, oh, I had the most incredible experience, I took LSD and then I took mushrooms and I really want to talk about it, they would make a consult to the substance abuse program, probably. Right? And you're laughing, but that's what I would have done five years ago. We don't have enough mental health professionals in our system to handle the current demand, let alone practitioners who are trained in psychedelic therapy. What do we need to do to prepare for this exploding field of treatment? And what does the public need to understand about these substances? Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Health. This is our last episode of the year, and we'll be back in 2023. In today's episode, professor and trauma expert Rachel Yehuda joins Andrew Penn, a professor and psychiatric nurse, and biopharmaceutical entrepreneur Jishan Chowdhury for a groundbreaking conversation on the status of psychedelic-assisted therapy research. The talk is moderated by Shoshana Ungerleiter, host of the TED Health podcast and a practicing physician. Here's Ungerleiter. We're all aware of the mental health crisis in America. This is a huge burden for people, for families, for clinicians, and our healthcare system. COVID has only made this worse. In any given year, an estimated 18.1%, which is 43.6 million U.S. adults over 18 suffer from mental illness. We don't have enough psychiatrists and therapists to meet the demand. And the treatments we do have, to say the least, don't work as well as we would like them to. So how might psychedelic-assisted therapy be helpful? Well, that's what we're here to talk about. And let's start with just a tiny bit of context. In the 50s and 60s, if you didn't live through that period of time, psychedelic research really flourished all over the world and showed great promise for the fields of psychiatry, of psychology, and neuroscience. But psychedelics leaked out of the research setting and began to be used by the counterculture and by the anti-Vietnam War movement. And there was a backlash. So in 1970, the US government criminalized all uses of psychedelics, and they started shutting down all psychedelic research. And this ban really spread all over the world and lasted for decades. And it landed us where we are today, and yes, Psychedelics, aside from ketamine, are still illegal in this country outside of a clinical trial. So with that said, uh, let's dive in here. Andrew. <laughs> and no, we don't have any samples. No, we're not giving it out tonight. Um, Sorry. Andrew, right now, psychedelic-assisted therapy is being studied in, in clinical settings for everything from PTSD to depression, yeah. substance use disorder, OCD, end-of-life distress, prolonged grief, and many others. So for people who aren't familiar, um, these clinical settings create a very different scenario than a recreational use of psychedelics. Can you walk us through what it's like to be a trial participant, for example, and specifically, how does the assisted therapy component come into this? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad you talked about that, about this being a therapy-focused process, because really in the press, it's the drugs that get a lot of the attention. And what these compounds are doing is they're helping to catalyze uh, psychotherapy. And so psychedelics are very contextual drugs. So that, by that I mean the experience, where you're having the experience, with whom you're having the experience, is, is a significant determinant of what they, what's going to happen. And if it was just a drug alone, then you know, Burning Man would be curative for a large number of people, or, or Woodstock, depending on your, your vintage. Um, <laughs> But, it's, but we know that the, that the drug alone doesn't do the work. So, so in our lab, and our lab is, is similar to many others that are doing this work, uh, we, we begin with several sessions of non-drug psychotherapy. And we work with two psychotherapists, 
Um, historically, it was a male-female dyad, but we're, we're now eliminating that uh, to, to, for greater flexibility and also gender inclusivity. Uh, and, and we'll have uh, two, three, two-hour sessions with the subject, uh, getting to know them, them getting to know us. We're starting to create a container, a therapeutic container where this can happen safely. We want to know what issues they're coming into uh, the session with, what their history is with, it, be it depression in the studies that we're doing with psilocybin or PTSD in the studies that we're doing with MDMA, what their concerns are, what their fears are about the, the experience. We walk them through what the day is going to look like. We might uh, rehearse uh, reassuring touch if that's something that the, that the subject is okay with. Um, and then we'll have them actually practice lying down on our couch. And we have eye shades, we have uh, headphones. And then, so we do that a couple of times, two or three times before we actually have the dosing session. The dosing session lasts all day. They come in in the morning. Um, they've obviously already done their, their physical uh, exams, gotten that all of the way so that we know that we can do this safely from a physiologic standpoint. Uh, the, the drug is ingested usually nine o'clock in the morning. And then we're there all day. And during the, the, the therapy session, there may not be a lot of talking going on. So it may not look like when you think of conventional psychotherapy, uh, more of a dialogue happening. This is, we often encourage people to direct their attention inward. That's where the eye shades and the music are useful. Um, and then uh, afterwards, starting the next day, so the drug will wear off after five, seven hours, depending on the drug. Uh, and then we begin what we call integration psychotherapy, where we start to unpack the experience of the day before. I try and make sense out of the experience, try and identify themes, identify opportunities for change, because what this may represent is a period of possible neuroplasticity, uh, openness to, to change, and we look for opportunities to make actual actionable change in that person's life uh, towards their intentions of, of healing. Thank you. And, and Rachel, Andrew touched on this a little bit, but we hear the concept of intentionality being used when we talk about the therapeutic experience with psychedelics and the framework of set and setting. Why is this important? Oh, thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. And Andrew did start us off with answering that question. But understanding intentionality and set and setting with psychedelics is probably the most important thing you're going to hear tonight. Um, and I'll just elaborate on, on your example. Um, let's say you have a drug like um, MDMA, ecstasy. So if you take it in a recreational context, what does ecstasy or MDMA do? It reduces your fear response. It promotes pro-social behavior. It makes you less judgmental. It makes you more likely to engage with people or trust them more. So if you're in a recreational context, then you might have a really good time meeting people. You might dance or feel less inhibited than usual. You might trust people, maybe take them home and continue the evening with them, <laughs> if you will. But in, but in a therapeutic... I don't think there's any documented cases of that ever. Uh, <laughs> especially not a burning man. <laughs> um, but if you want to use this drug in a recreational, in a, a therapeutic context, sorry, then that, those same properties start to work for you in different ways. You harness them. So the reduction in fear becomes more of a, a willingness to engage in exploring traumatic memories that are scary. The pro-social behavior becomes a connection with the therapist, the building of interpersonal trust. So you basically take the same properties of the, of the compound, but you harness them. And you harness them in the presence of trained therapists. You can take that same experience and really have a very deep psychotherapeutic process. That's the intention part. The setting part is that you're not at a rave, and you're not at a party, and you're not at a festival. You're in a room that is safe with people who are going to keep you safe. And you are able, in that safe room, to be able to go very, very deeply into material that usually is not accessible because of the anxiety, the anxiety of what the material is, that you'll run out of time, that you won't get to say it, that you don't trust the people to listen to it. But this promotes a very different kind of a process. 
Thank you so much for that. Jishan, I, can you set some more historical context for us? Psychedelics have been around a real long time. There is a very long history of, of human use of these substances. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think the best, well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to see so many people from the Aspen community join us here. Uh, I think the best way to describe is that this moment in time that we are living of prohibition is, is really an aberration of all human history. Um, Humans have had relationship with psychoactive comp uh, plants like psychedelics for thousands of years. This is not just something that we take from the oral tradition, but there's hard evidence around that. Uh, my company works with mescaline, um, which comes from the peyote cactus or the wachuma cactus. The earliest evidence that we have um, of fossilized um, peyote buttons in specialized burial sites goes back to 5,700 BC. We have similar evidence for uh, um, ayahuasca, for mushroom use. Um, uh, and so we, as humans, have, have multiple relationships with plants. We use them for food, obviously. We use them for textiles and our clothing, for uh, structures, our lumber. And we know that we use them for physical medicines, aspirin or up to all the way to new medicine like Taxol, comes from plants. So the idea that we would not use plants for mental, uh, mental health and for psychiatric healing is also an, aber an, an, aber an aberration. And so we have a, a, a long history and almost a universal history of using these types of psychoactive compounds. I think other than um, the Inuit where there's just simply not much that grows there, almost every society um, that we have encountered has some tradition of using psycho psychoactive substances, um, particularly for healing. And to, to what um, my colleagues here have said, when we look at those communities, it's always been done in a ritualistic mm -hmm. setting. It's always been done with intention. And I think there's a lot to learn, not only from the fact that where we are in this forced period of abstinence, and, and we know how forced periods of abstinence usually work out in, in, in multiple dimensions, um, that we need, have an opportunity to have a relationship again with these substances, uh, with these plants and with these, with these psychoactive compounds, and I'm really excited about where we're going with that. Rachel, I want to come back to you and, uh, and talk about what you're doing in your lab. It was there that what you were doing some of the very first uh, studies to look at the biological underpinnings of PTSD and have studied intergenerational epigenetic transmission of, of trauma in military veterans, in Holocaust survivors. And PTSD, as many people probably know, remains very, very difficult to treat. Mm -hmm. So, Rachel, you started out as a skeptic and have really become an advocate, of course, for psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy research. And you now, of course, uh, established and now direct the Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy and Trauma Research. So tell us about that journey. Oh, okay, thank you for asking. Um, well, I would have been skeptical of any claim that anyone had that a treatment in such a very short time can um, take away somebody's PTSD. Um, scientists are naturally skeptical people, and PTSD is a very difficult uh, condition to treat. And I'm not an advocate for using psychedelics, but I am an advocate for doing the research on it. And that, and what started to flip my process. Um, of course, when the initial study came out, I just thought, what is this? Um, a very large effect size, but a very small study. And I thought, I don't really understand this. Um, but as more studies came out that kept showing pretty large effect sizes, um, I started to pay more attention. But when the FDA declared um, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy a breakthrough treatment, that really changed things for me. Um, when the FDA declares something a breakthrough treatment, what they're saying is, this is better than anything that we've got going on right now. And so for somebody that really cares about PTSD and wants to study it so that for the purpose of really learning how to treat it, it became an issue of how could you not study it. So I knew that it was going to be difficult to get more conservative mainstream academic or community settings to kind of want to look at this. Um, especially in this early stage before it is um, made legal or approved as a treatment. But I thought these are the populations that really um, need to be studied the most. And so it really became a moral imperative of sorts. Um, you, can't look to, you can't look at a treatment that is really doing 
twice as well as the standard of care. Um, I should say twice as well as the standard of care, but still leaving some people uh, <laughs> with symptoms, so that's very important to not walk away thinking that this is a treatment for everybody. But that, that made it even more important, like who responds, who doesn't. And we had been studying predict biological predictors and correlates of psychotherapy and other treatments. So we're, we were in a good position to kind of take this on, and that's why we established the center at Mount Sinai. Thank you. Andrew, I want to talk about an area that's really near and dear to my heart and my work at Endwell. Mm -hmm. And it turns out we, we don't have the tools to be able to adequately care for people who have existential fear, uh, dread, and distress uh, when, when diagnosed with a terminal illness. Mm -hmm. And the medicines that we do have for anxiety and pain tend to, to blunt the senses and, and not allow us to live fully until we die. So tell us why uh, psychedelics might be helpful for patients and, and certainly their families who are facing a life-limiting illness, and, and what has the research shown to date on that? Yeah, so, so this was one of the very important earlier studies. On, it's, the field is moving so fast that it feels kind of ridiculous to say something that was published in 2016 was an earlier study, but it, it is. So there was a pair of studies that were done, one at NYU, and one at Hopkins that looked at people with life-threatening illness uh, who had anxiety around that diagnosis, whether uh, largely cancer. Uh, and they were treated with this course of uh, psilocybin-assisted uh, therapy intervention. And outcomes were significant. And, and they measured a number of things in that, uh, but depression and anxiety around the illness and depression and anxiety in general were, were measured. And the vast majority of people had what's known as a response, which is that they got somewhat better, but a significant number of people remitted, even at the end of six months of the study period. And some of the people that continued to, that didn't pass from their illness, they were followed, lasted, uh, the, the effect lasted as long as four and a half years. And so there was something about this, this shift that was really important, and, and, and it really underscores the need that you pointed out, which is that you know, we don't die well in this country. We're, we've, we've developed incredible medicine to help us live for a very long time, but when it comes to dying, despite you know, the, the really valiant efforts of people like Cicely Saunders, who was a British nurse who started the, the, uh, the modern hospice uh, movement and palliative medicine, we do a really good job of managing physical symptoms. We can help people be comfortable as they're approaching the end of their life. But when it comes to their, their soul, their spiritual needs, we call the chaplain, usually. If you're in a hospital, you call the chaplain. And no knock on chaplains. Some of my best friends are chaplains. Um, <laughs> but we really, you know, and it's challenging because we live in an increasingly secular country, too. So what do we, those, what do we give those people? And, and so you know, whether you're religious or secular, it doesn't matter. You know, the, the soul needs things like meaning and connection and love and purpose. And what these treatments may allow people to do is to review their life. You know, I mean, you know Goethe said, you know, if you, if you haven't died before you die, then when you die, you really die, or something like that, you know? He was really concise with his words. But, um, <laughs> but this idea that, you know, we actually get a chance to practice dying um, in, this, in this kind of treatment, and that maybe it becomes not so frightening because there is this phenomenon that happens, especially with psilocybin and serotonergic psychedelics, where you know, sometimes people call it ego death. But this idea of shifting from that, you know, my worries and my story and my concerns are kind of the center of my universe and they preoccupy most of my time, to stepping back to, to what, um, if you heard the speaker last night talking about, a state of awe, in a state of something much bigger than ourselves, where, yeah, we're still part of it. And, and we still have an importance and we, we don't disappear, but that there's so much more. And that we, if we can connect to that, especially as we approach, you know, hopefully we don't have to wait until the end of our lives to connect to that. But if, if, if that's the case, well then so be it. Um, but that's, that, that may be what's happening there. Mm, powerful. Um, Jishan, I wanna talk a little bit about the, the pathway. Uh, so how does a compound like MDMA or peyote, for example, help to, I sort of think about it like clearing a path to healing or to allow a person's innate healing maybe to be activated? How do you think about this? 
That's a very tough, tough question. Um, okay. I, I will say that we don't know how a lot of things work in medicine, so um, does anyone use Tylenol here before? <laughs> if you ask a scientist how Tylenol works, we have some ideas, but what we know is that it's an empirical story rather than a scientific story. We know a certain dose reduces fever, a certain dose reduces inflammation, um, and now over like 100 years of scientific research and an incredible la like last few decades of clinical trial research, we know that certain doses of serotonergic, um, what we call these classical psychedelics, can produce these outcomes. We have some idea of, of uh, we have some theories around it. Uh, we know at the receptor level that they introduce neuro, what we call neuroplasticity. So like you'll, you'll actually see whether the synapses in the brain like making new connections. Um, with fMRI imaging, we know that different parts of the brain talk that weren't talking before. Um, and from like a psychological level, from the insights that people are able to face with from what Rachel was saying, having your fear response reduced to be able to process trauma. So these things are happening in parallel and together. Um, what's, what's really interesting is this idea that you mentioned of this inner, inner healer that the brain has. And I'd use the analogy that you know, if you cut yourself, you know, depending on the severity of the wound, you may need to wash it out. You may need to approximate the wound with sutures. We may put a bandage on. But you don't need to tell your body how to heal it will heal itself. And something seems to happen in the psychedelic state of consciousness when it's done with the right intention in a safe therapeutic setting, not necessarily a Burning Man, um, that these, this inner healer starts to um, function and work and people start to work through the traumas, adverse events, the, the issues that are, that are, that are facing the, in their lives. And we often tell people you're, you're not gonna, you may not get the trip that you want, but the trip that you need. And I think that's also a reflection of this, this inner healer that is functioning. Um, and it, I think it's the awe of the human mind and the human psyche that w when given a safe space to be able to process that it can heal itself. Mm. I want to switch gears a little bit and I want to start with Rachel and jump into the policy realm. Now this is sort of a question for everybody but we'll start at the end here. And so we know states like Oregon and maybe soon Colorado are passing legislation to make psilocybin, for example, legal. So what are the pitfalls of fast-tracking state-level legislation, such as in Oregon, and where do you see the potential for issues to arise? Well, um, that's a complicated question. Um, I was hoping to get the question about how the drug works. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so... We can come back to you on this no, if you want. No, it's okay, I'll do it. But it's, it's, it's not going to necessarily be what everybody wants to hear, because I have some real reservations about this. Absolutely. Um, and it's not that I don't think that it should never be legalized or anything like that, and I really take what you have said about like our whole history of the use of plant medicines, and I understand that perhaps the reasons that caused these substances to be banned were political more than anything else, and all of that is true. But I have two sets of concerns. One really involves the, whether we know enough about the safety of taking psychedelics in this culture, in this time, in this here and now, um, to be able to um, save as we are saying when we, when we bring these bills forward, that these compounds are perfectly safe. Now, that the compounds themselves are not as dangerous as many drugs that we have that are legal, such as, for example, opiates. Um, even alcohol. Even alcohol. So we, we don't worry so much about the physical properties of the drug or the toxicity or even the addictive nature of it. But psychedelics can increase a lot of psychological vulnerability. And so then the question becomes who can facilitate? What happens if somebody, I enough so many, this happened to me so many times where somebody is taking a psychedelic for what they think will be recreation or exploration and they'll uncover a memory of a trauma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the facilitator who does not have a mental health background is not going to be equipped to deal with it. Maybe they can go through that six-hour session okay and, and have a phone call the next morning. But this might initiate a process. So in a, in a stressed mental health system, 
um, do these bills build in harm reduction and do they build in mental health treatment or the influx of more mental health treatment that people will want to have if part of their exploration involves this. So it's not that I don't think that these, these um, medicines should be legalized, but I think we don't want to walk into this naively without harm reduction and without making sure that our mental health systems and the people that work in the communities where this is legal, even if they're not going to ever deal with psychedelic drugs, they're going to have to understand what has just happened to somebody <laughs> with a facilitator that now ends them on your doorstep. And I just want to make sure that we have the resources for that. So that's one set of concerns. The second set of concerns is really about timing. Timing is everything, right? Is this what we should be doing now? We're on the cusp of perhaps advancing MDMA and psilocybin as treatments for PTSD and depression, you know, because the FDA has given both of those um, treatments breakthrough therapy. What will the impact be? Will that facilitate that by making it easier to study these drugs because they won't be illegal? Or will it undermine it by making this more about business opportunities for having a spa for your brain or CEOs optimizing their performance? Or will it be in the places where hopefully these medicines can do the most good in community settings and FBAs, reimbursable, insurable, medical, what will the impact be on that? Now, if we've thought about that and we don't think that this will sabotage that the way maybe cannabis did sabotage that, then great. If we can put in harm reduction because we're walking in with our eyes open, great. But to, to walk in because these are the greatest drugs on earth and there's no problem to them, I think, is a problem for me. No, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you're saying that, Rachel. And, and if I could please put a plug in for psychedelic harm reduction. Um, you know, because one of the things that these compounds do, which can be leveraged in a therapeutic setting, is they decrease what we call experiential avoidance, which is that people develop all sorts of strategies to not feel their feelings, um, from using substances to you know, any number of different strategies. And what psychedelics tend to do is they tend to put all that right in your face. They can. Um, and, and so that's why the old adage of you don't know, always get the trip you want, you may get the trip that you need, but that may be very, very difficult. Uh, and so I, I've done psychedelic harm reduction at Burning Man. I've been going to Burning Man since 1998, so. Uh. <laughs> hey, hey, wait. Anyone else going to Burning Man? Me too. Yes. Any other burners in the room? Yes, Rachel's been to Burning Man, yes. I clean up well. Um, so, so I, I, I've worked with a, with a offshoot of, of MAPS, uh, which is the organization that's sponsoring the MDMA work, right. called the Zendo Project. And the Zendo Project is a, is a space where anybody can come to who's having a difficult time emotionally. Sometimes that may involve a psychedelic. It may just be because they've been awake for three nights and they just broke up with their partner. It doesn't matter. They can come and they can, we have trained volunteers who will sit with them for as long as they want. Uh, if they want to talk, they can talk. If they just want to sit, if they just want to sleep, they can sleep. But it's a safe space so that you don't end up uh, in law enforcement or an emergency room when you're having maybe one of the most difficult times of your life. And um, a colleague of mine, Josh White, has, has rolled out an organization called the Fireside Project, which is actually a, it's a telephone number. You can call it, you can text it and they have similar trained volunteers to work with people who are having a difficult experience or, or have recently had a challenging experience that want to integrate it. So the, the, these are the kind of things that we're doing to try and reduce this harm. But to Rachel's point, you know, these are powerful tools. And any powerful tool that can have this much positive impact can have a commensurate amount of harm. Now, it's not the same kind of harm we're seeing with like fentanyl because people aren't going to, you know, if you're not, you can't take enough LSD to stop breathing like you can with opioids, but you can have very challenging emotional experiences. So this isn't for everyone. And one of the big questions that we, I don't think we've done a good job as a field of identifying is, who is this not good for? You know, that is something we need to determine just as much as, as figuring out who this works for. Jishan, to you. Yeah, I, mean, I, I would approach this question is that we, we've been in this war on drugs and we're moving to 
like a, you know, what, is, what does the peace look like? And a war on drugs is a misnomer in that you know, this is an uncomfortable but uncontroversial statement to say that the war on drugs is a war on people. It's been a war on brown and black people primarily and a war on the women who have held these traditions alive for so long. And so as we move into the peace, we have lost the people who, um, like quite literally, we've burned them at the stake, we've put them in jail, we've wiped out their cultures and their communities, that we don't have that um, cultural context, we do not have the literacy, we do not have the rituals that these other, these other cultures have had. And so we're moving into the peace without these tools. But I, I do think there is a lot that we can learn from those traditional communities. And again, like in those communities, these have always been seen as very powerful tools. They would use the word sacrament, but I think we can say these are powerful tools. And there was always a ritual around them. There's always been um, a reverence and a respect to them and, and how we do that in a secular setting that is accessible to all, I think that's an open question, but I think there's a lot of groundwork that we need to do. I think there are some things on the war on drugs that we can move very quickly, which is you know the in, in terms of mass incarceration, expunging people's um, records, those are things we can do now, but in terms of like what this is gonna take for us as a society to integrate, I think we need to learn and spend the time building that infrastructure. Yeah. So this is a question for Andrew, and I'm coming to Rachel next on this. One area where there's an urgent need, and you've touched on this a little bit, is for training guides or facilitators yeah. of therapy, right? So given the amount of, of demand that's out there, and as access will increase, um, where do you see this headed? And can you talk about the role of nursing in this work? Yeah, sure. So th this is going to be a huge bottleneck. Uh, when this gets FDA approved, we're going to have a few thousand people, maybe at most, who have actually been trained to do this work. And as I said at the beginning, this is primarily a psychotherapy process. This is not just giving somebody a pill and walking away. This is, uh, you have to train people in how to navigate these spaces and how to help people through them. Um, and, and we're gonna have a short, we're gonna have a real shortage of people who know how to do this. And we're gonna have a tremendous amount of demand because honestly, that's what happens in psychiatry, right? That's what happens in medicine, but particularly happens in psychiatry. You know, probably because we have so much unmet need that there's gonna be so many people who are going to be lining up for this and we're not gonna have the therapists for them. And we also have to make sure, as Rachel said, that, that this is covered under commercial insurance. So this doesn't just remain something that is for people that have uh, excess wealth. They can buy this. So, so one of the places that I'm particularly interested in this as a nurse is that a lot of the inherent ethos of nursing line up very nicely with psychedelic therapy. So nursing is about care more than it is about cure, which is largely what we do. It's about presence. It's about spending long periods of time with people. So you know, when I tell my therapist friends, you know, well, a psilocybin session can be eight hours, they say, eight hours? I do 50-minute sections. I say, yeah, we do 12-hour shifts in the ICU. <laughs> you know, 12-hour shift with somebody who's totally delirious, that's an ICU shift for a lot of people. So, um, so the idea of being present with, with patients for that period of time and allowing this natural healing capacity to manifest is something which is very aligned with nurses. And nurses, you know, as oft repeated, are a very trusted profession. And so, it, you know, and we're sort of of the people. So most people know a nurse, you know, they have sisters, a nurse, or a you know, family member. And so, you know, it, it's, it's sort of very naturally uh, aligns. It, it, and, and it's also a way of getting this into places that are not Aspen and that are not San Francisco and not New York. Because we, you know, there's people suffering in South Dakota who are gonna need this too. And I'm not sure there's too many psychedelic therapists there in South Dakota. So, so in scaling this, we may really need to think about workforce development. And there's 3.8 million nurses in the United States. And so I don't think it would take too much additional training to, to get uh, nurses who want to do this kind of work on board with it. Yeah, and Rachel, can you share about your training program for VA and community providers? Oh yeah, sure, thanks. Um, so. Thanks to a, a very generous philanthropic gift from the Bob and Renee Parsons Foundation, we were able to expand a program that we start that started pretty small into a program where we could offer uh, therapists working at VAs and community settings um, the free MDMA-assisted psychotherapy training. We're, we're doing this in partnership with MAPS, who's going to certify and credential us to be trainers and supervisors. Now, what I think is important about training isn't just to create people who can work with psychedelics. I think we want to be training all clinicians. Um, 
about what it means to be in an altered state, how to facilitate a process, what it might mean for them if somebody comes to their office saying that they participated or took psychedelics mm -hmm. and they had a revelation how they can work more with them. Right now, in traditional settings, if a patient comes and says, oh, I had the most incredible experience, I took LSD and then I took mushrooms and I really want to talk about it, they would make a consult to the substance abuse program, probably, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. you're laughing, but that's what I would have done five years ago. I would have said, oh, boy, this is somebody that has a substance abuse problem. So that's the kind of education that has to happen on a fundamental level. We have to start introducing courses in medical schools and graduate schools that talk about what, what psychedelic medicines are, because unlike other medicines in medicine and psychiatry, we've been emphasizing that they're a tool to assist in psychotherapy. Right, so the chemical properties, which we know, uh, the receptor actions, which we know, um, all of the, the plasticity, all the things that we know about these drugs don't really quite explain the phenomenon of why these, taking these drugs in the presence of psychotherapy occasions a therapeutic process or an insight that then leads to symptom reduction. So I think, um, I feel very fortunate that we're able to offer this training for free. There, there are a lot of places to get trained uh, in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, but they're expensive. And so most people make the investment if they want to shift their practice, because then they will be in a position to also charge a lot of money for these treatments, which they should, because it's a lot of man hours. If you're in private practice, you have to recoup mm -hmm. that. But a clinical setting, you know, or a community setting um, where people are salaried and there's a great high need might be a place. If these um, therapies are found to really uh, be a game changer in terms of reducing symptoms or getting people to a place where they don't need to keep coming every week for months or years or decades, if there could be like a more intense interaction the way the way it is when you go to a surgeon, right? You're not, he's gonna work with you very, very intensely. Um, and he's gonna become the most important person in your life, you know, for the prep and the surgery and the aftercare. And then you won't even remember his name next time somebody wants to, uh, asks you for a good surgeon, right? You might not even remember who he is or, or where you put his phone number. Um, so if these, that's the, that's the promise of this approach, that instead of keeping people in for really long year, periods of time, years and decades, that we have something that is intense, that is labor intensive, um, but that may actually cause a breakthrough. Now, we don't know yet if that's going to happen. That's why we're doing this research. That's the promise of it. And so we don't want to confuse the potential for this to be a new paradigm of care with the fact that it's a done deal yet. And that's why these forums are so important because public education is so important too. You have to know this. We all have to know this. And we have to follow the process and kind of be able to separate the hype and the sexy part of the altered state and the drug from really the fact that getting over mental health problems is hard work because you have to go to places that are so difficult. And if this is something that, you know, kind of is like a chemotherapy or a surgery or one of these really invasive things that you do for a short period of time to come out the other side, perhaps with little boosters now and then, then we have now transformed the landscape of mental health treatment. Wow. I, I want to... Tishan, I want to go a little bit deeper into this because I, maybe it's obvious to you all, but this is something that is sort of just kind of dawned on me. You know, we're talking about the potential for psychedelic assisted therapy to be maybe curative for mental health issues, potentially. So you're shifting from maybe treating symptoms to addressing underlying mechanisms. Maybe I, I shouldn't go as far as to say the word cure, right? Yeah. But how do you think about this? Yeah, uh, people that deal in mental health don't use the word cure. Yeah. We never use it. 
we think about it as maybe a little remission or uh, uh, very long periods of good functioning, episodes of care, right? We have a language, and in our language, um, we, it belies our belief that, you know, if you have once had mental health problems, we're on deep surveillance for you to um, maybe have another episode at another time. And that really, really good care is when you can go for a long period of time in between episodes. Yeah. Um, so this, so again, it's, it's a hopeful thing. Now, I think that it, you know, it depends on if you believe that underneath these mental health issues is a trauma, is something that you need to look at, is something painful that you haven't dealt with because it's too overwhelming to deal with. And so the promise here is that maybe if you can go there mm -hmm. and you can shift your mind about it, mm -hmm. you can see the world in a different way, you can get stuck, unstuck from being stuck, then maybe you have a chance to go forward. Another event can bring you maybe back, but maybe you'll have better tools to get out of this um, quicker. So no, I'm not using the word cure yet. Okay. I think we need to do a lot more research and much more longer-term follow-ups, but that's really where the excitement mm -hmm. is coming from that you see the possibility in a way that you don't see it for treatments that you have to take a pill every single day for. Yep. And, and if I could put a, a, add to that, um, you know, psychiatry is an interesting field because, you know, we, 30 years ago we had the decade of the brain, we had some tremendous advances in, you know, such as your work with cortisol, um, and really understanding the neurobiology of, of the brain. But there was also this idea that, that perhaps we could eliminate mental illness through, through chemistry. And, and that's fallen short, uh, if we're gonna be honest with ourselves, that's fallen short. We've had tremendous advances, and it also hasn't fulfilled its promise. And, and so, you know, I think sometimes um, we in psychiatry, we kind of have science envy. You know, we have, we, we ha I, I have oncology envy personally right now, because in oncology in the last 30 years, they made tremendous advances, right? And so in oncology, it used to be, there was, it was categorical. You either had cancer still or, or it was eliminated, right? And now we define success often as arresting a tumor. We have you know, things like checkpoint inhibitors that arrest tumors from growing. So you can, have, you can be riddled with tumors for years, but you're not dying of it because the cancer's not advancing. You're living with that cancer. Um, and, and I think when I expand this into mental health, I think of this idea of either you're, you're sick or you're ill. It doesn't work in psychiatry because the maladies that we treat in psychiatry are really in some ways just the extremes of normal human emotional experience. I mean, where, where's the line between sad and depressed? We can create one in the DSM, but it's an arbitrary line. So this idea that we're going to have, you know, the, the, this, the cured and the sick, I think is naive. But what I do think might happen is that we change the relationship that the person has with the illness. So that, you know, this idea that pain and suffering are not the same thing. That suffering is about the relationship that you have to pain. So in psychiatry, the pain may be your traumatic childhood, but the suffering is the story that you have around that pain. And what I see in the work that we do is that people begin to slowly change the story that they have about their own life experiences and their own illness. And that's what alleviates the suffering. And they may still have that disease, but that's okay because it's not impeding their life. I, I, I think, when I was in med school, you basically were looked down if you went into psychiatry. It Sorry was like the that. last yeah. thing to look at. People wanted to be surgeons, they wanted interventions, they yep. wanted to be able to make a change. Like surgery is attractive because you go in, you do the surgery, it's an acute bundle of care, and you make an intervention. But we are ushering in an era of interventional psychiatry yep. with these tools where we're not just watching, we're not throwing the same drugs at patients, like we're actually giving these interventions that are these acute bundles of care that can get patients into, well I would say like psychiatric remission for their disease, and there may be episodic care that follows after there. But that, that's really exciting. And I I, I think the next generation of like students and clinicians will want to join. Like I think there is, um, you know, I, the workforce issue is is 
you know, is a bottleneck, but I, I am hopeful that, you know, with these tools that more and more people will step into these careers mm -hmm. and want to join them. And I'm excited for, you know, what we call this, like, a, it's a healing economy where these are, these, we're in a world where many of the jobs that we have will no longer exist. But these are jobs that you cannot outsource and you cannot automate that they can be run by local centers, by people who look like the people they're trying to treat. And that is a very vibrant economy that we are headed towards. Mm. Love that. Yes, Rachel. Yeah, yeah, I love what both of you said. I really do. Um, I just think that we want to keep in mind that some um, psychiatric conditions and mental health presentations are very biological. Absolutely. Mm. And mm -hmm. We're going to need all the tools that we've collected in mm -hmm. order to really figure out which thing is which. So I think where psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy can help the most is um, potentially when there is some shift that needs to happen in someone's thinking. I, I really love how you framed it around thinking differently about your condition. But we all know people whose um, who's, who's mental health uh, symptoms seem almost organic or, yep. um, and, and very non-experientially based. So we're going to have to really do a lot of work to figure this out. And ultimately, we'll be able to develop an algorithm. And I think um, a lot of the science we've developed will come in handy as we try to um, use these science tools to really figure out you know what's what so as long as we don't immediately throw out the old and usher in the new mm -hmm. that's not nuanced we have an opportunity here to add something in that might explain why we're not helping so many of the people that are not helped by traditional methods understanding that this also will not be helpful to certain kinds of presentations. Right. So want to just make sure that we keep the richness of individual differences and the expertise of providers to really know the difference and be able to use their skill set to be able to match people to an approach. I mean, there's, there's certainly not for everyone. We, we know right now that if you have a history of psychosis or you have family history of psychosis, like a first degree relative, so like you know, a parent or, or a sibling, or even now like an aunt or an uncle, that psychedelics we currently can't treat with. And so we, we need more tools in the toolbox. Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and to be clear, you know, in sort of a lot of the, the dialogue around this, there's been such effervescent exuberance around psychedelics. Um, to the point where I'm kind of exhausted by it personally. I, and I understand where it, it had to come from because we had to overcome the gravitational pull of prohibition. And so in doing so, we've created a lot of, uh, a, a lot of what I, I'm concerned are unrealistic expectations. And, and you know, we're still going to need conventional psychiatry and psychedelic psycho, psychiatry. It's not an either or. If anything psychedelics teaches you, it's to appreciate paradox. Is this is not an either or world, it's a both and. And, and this is, and, and we have to keep this sort of a meta process here that we have to keep that in mind that this isn't going to eliminate conventional psychiatry, nor should it, because they're not for everyone. And conventional psychiatry works for some people, but for those whom it doesn't, let's have this as an option once we have the science to show that it works. Okay. I think we want to take some audience questions. Who has questions about what they've heard? Um, we'll, we'll spend about 10 minutes. And I just want to say, please phrase your question in the, in the form of a question. We'll try to get through as many as we can. And we actually, unfortunately, even though we're all clinicians and scientists, we cannot answer medical questions. So, and we can't offer medical advice. So please keep that in mind as well. Doctors, but not your doctor. That's right. <laughs> okay. Well Ready. Like that. Hey, thanks. My name is James Corbin. I'm an ethicist. Uh, question is that uh, when marijuana became legal here, uh, people don't want to admit it, but a lot of people were doing it already, and they hit the ground running. So we're seeing the same thing in psychedelics right here in Colorado and across the country. So any thoughts on that and guidance for those who are doing it? Many of you you'll meet next year when you're here for the big conference. Big ups, Andrew. <laughs> uh, I'll start off. I mean, I, I think marijuana and psychedelics are very, very different things. Cannabis is um, 
like it can be used as a psycholytic tool. I think there's a, you know, we see it, an established recreational market for it, a social market for it. Um, psychedelics are very, very powerful tools. Um, as again, I'll come back, like the only people who have mastered this at scale are traditional indigenous communities, and they don't, they don't use it like how we use cannabis, uh, psychedelics. Like they, it's always been used as a ritual in a safe setting, and I think we need to learn from that uh, exclusively. Next question. Hi, thank you so much. It's so exciting to live in Aspen for the last six years and have this conversation at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Awesome, thank you. Um, as a person, individual, not a PhD, who uh, is a huge advocate for psychedelics, m deep reverence for ritual set setting, admiration and deep respect for the concerns, um, completely, and also believes in them so much that I, my friend, <laughs> um, would love to participate in this as a career. And also, like, do you have any advice for somebody in that field, in a community who wants it, absolutely, but there is no guidance yet? So, so like, where to, like, what can I do, do tomorrow or the next day? Like, what are the initial steps into um, really respecting this and playing the part into bringing it into communities that could be served? And um, do, you, do you have any advice for that pathway? So you mean becoming like a facilitator or a guide yourself? Yes. yes. Who would like that? I, I mean, right now, you know, the two places where this will likely be legal will be in religious contexts and in medical context. So that kind of creates either a situation where either your doctor or your priest become gatekeepers. Now, places like Oregon, where this, may, this will soon be legal in a sort of overseen, facilitated setting, uh, introduce a third way. I mean, to, to your question, I think you know, learning harm reduction um, and learning temperance, I think is really important. I think one of the places we got in trouble with this last time was it saying this was for everyone, for all, all reasons? It's not. It's really not. And if we're gonna do this right this time, we have to learn where it's appropriate and when it's not and how to say no when it's not appropriate. Because that, that's the nuance that we have, to, we have to do better this time than we did 50 years ago. So for folks who are non-clinical, they have no background in, in medicine and therapy, is there any pathway for somebody to become trained in, in, in being a facilitator or a guide? I mean, they're doing that in Oregon. Yes, they, are. they do have a pathway for non-clinician facilitators. We, we'll see how it works. And in, in obstetrics, we've like slowly, the frustrating is slowly have accepted the role of a doula in, mm -hmm. in, 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 con, in a team with nurses, an obstetrician, a surgeon. Uh, we don't have that yet, but the idea of a psychedelic doula, I think, is something that mm -hmm. needs to be addressed. And how, wh who are people who are outside of medical training that can still provide, like in birth and in death, mm -hmm. um, a doula type of experience? But you should still try to get some mental health coursework or um, experience under your belt, it won't hurt. N yeah. Not necessarily towards a degree, but towards understanding it. Yep. Next question. <laughs> I'm really concerned about um, what, you know, about mental illness in the family and undiagnosed mental illness within oneself. and whenever psychedelics are discussed, that comes up for me. I'm curious to know anything more about that. Also, what we're talking about with mental illness. So, you know, if you don't have, say, schizophrenia or bipolar in your family, in your, you know, within your aunts and uncles, like how far back are we talking about inside, in your family? And um, what types of mental illnesses are we talking about that can be triggered by um, psychedelics? I mean, as, as Jishan was saying, one of the uh, absolute exclusion criteria has been history of a psychotic illness, and that generally definitely includes schizophrenia and in some places bipolar disorder. Um, in my lab, we're about to do a study of bipolar two depression. So in bipolar two, people have uh, recurrent depression without full mania. 
So they, they generally don't have psychosis as part of their illness, but they get, have a lot of depression. Those people have all been excluded from previous studies. So we're going to do a very small pilot study to see if we can do this safely and if, and if it's as effective as it is in unipolar depression. Again, that's usually been a rule out for most, in most cases, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're going to be doing a study on borderline personality disorder and MDMA. Mm. We mean, the, the, we're very early, right? Like, yeah. we're, we're, we're dealing with the safest patients we can. Yeah. The, the, the burdens to doing this research are incredibly high and costly. But you know, with work like this, we are advancing and pushing the envelope in as safe a way as we can. And, and you know, we talk about FDA approval as if that's the finish line. That's just one lap. <laughs> So there's, and one of the things that's gonna be really important, and you have to realize that a lot of, so these phase three studies that we're doing with MDMA, because the FDA gave breakthrough status, it drastically reduced the number of patients that had to be in these studies, which is great from a cost perspective. It's not so great from a data perspective, because if you give a drug to uh, 200 people, you might not have a, a negative outcome that happens less than 1% of the time, but you give it to two million people, you're gonna see a lot of those cases, right? So when we go into what's post called post-marketing approval or phase four, we really need to be vigilant around this stuff and to be honest about it and, and to be able to identify people for whom this isn't working so that we don't get ourselves into trouble with this. Can we do Mike up here in the front? Make her run all the way across the room. All the way across the room, making you run. I'm sorry. I love what you guys are doing specifically around PTSD and the benefits that I, I see potential for us, us really understanding. I do want to ask a little bit about the difference between research, uh, traditional clinical research, and the contextualization that you guys really harped on here. Um, we, we will approve a drug, effective, non-effective, right? But we're not really thinking about what is the ecosystem. You need to be able to deliver it in and how, and, and that's not part, that's, so I think of like this context between research and innovation and what that looks like in terms of workflow and, uh, and environment and all the other pieces that you need to make something like this work. Tell me how you guys are thinking about that as you go through this process. I mean, Rachel, you spoke to us not having containers for these kind of experiences um, and, and this idea of where do we, you know, this idea of set and setting in psychedelics, the, the physical setting and the mindset you go into. But there's a third thing called matrix, which yeah. is the world you've come from and the world you're going to go back into. Right. Mm. And, and right now, the world we're set up for is not really well equipped to deal with that. And so there's been some efforts in, say, psychedelic integration circles and things like that where people can talk about their experiences. But, you know, we don't have a lot of infrastructure for people to process these very big experiences. And I think for this to be safe and effective, we're going to need to. Yeah, I think it's a very important consideration. So there is an artificiality in the research world, and there's no getting around it. Um, there are inclusion-exclusion criteria, which it, the layman way of saying that is not everyone can be part of the study, so we can't necessarily generalize the findings. And um, we tend to try to we de pick safe people. Um, the good news about the clinical world is that once you don't have the constraint of a protocol, clinicians will be able to use these drugs and custom, customize the solutions more. Uh, maybe you need four sessions or five or maybe, I don't know, but they can customize it more. But this idea of where you're returning the patient to is really very, very important. And this is why we have to do so much research in community settings and places like the VA. We have to know what it, what it looks like in real world settings um, because the, the research setting is a little bit artificial. So. Um, that, that's how we're stuck. Mm. But I think that we will be able to figure that out. We're going fast. We unfortunately have to leave it there, folks. Um, I want to thank our panelists, Rachel, Jisha, and Andrew. My goodness. This was phenomenal. Thank you for all you do. And thank you all for joining us. And maybe we'll stick around if you have more questions for a little while. Thank you.
Rachel Yehuda is an endowed professor of psychiatry and neuroscience of trauma at the Icon Medical School at Mount Sinai. She has authored more than 500 academic papers in the field of PTSD and intergenerational trauma, and her research on cortisol and epigenic mechanisms revolutionized our understanding of PTSD treatment. Dr. Yehuda established and now directs the Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy and Trauma Research. Mount Sinai is a 2022 Aspen Ideas Health underwriter. Andrew Penn is a psychiatric nurse practitioner and associate clinical professor in community health systems in the School of Nursing at the University of California, San Francisco. Penn works on psychedelic studies of psilocybin and MDMA in the Translational Psychedelics Research Lab at UCSF. He also practices at the San Francisco Veterans Administration. Jishan Chowdhury is the co-founder and CEO of Journey Colab, a biopharmaceutical company unlocking the science of psychedelics to build a new model of addiction care. Previously, Chowdhury co-founded Hacking Health, a nonprofit organization that holds hackathons in which frontline clinicians and technology experts collaborate across the United States, Canada, Europe, and Asia to develop web and mobile software solutions targeting some of healthcare's most complex problems. Shoshana Ungerleiter hosts the TED Health Podcast and is the founder of EndWellProject.org, a media platform to transform the end-of-life experience. She is also a practicing internal medicine physician. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Health team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.